Fun Ideas Productions presents the Fun Ideas Podcast. We see the syphilitic shrinking obelisk. The white man's wilting dick. Of CD game show trolls, the smiling lie of the televised hive. The witches are watching with their thousand eyes. Witches are watching with their thousand eyes. We smell rotten teeth. Hi, this is Mark Arnold, and welcome to Fun Ideas Podcast number 54. This episode is sponsored by the fine folks at Lee's Comics. Artist and previous podcast guest Scott Shaw has finished the cover artwork for Headquartered, the book on the monkey's solo career, and it should be out in February or March of 2020. I won't be making the trek to Beetlefest, unfortunately, but my co-author and also previous podcast guest Michael A. Ventrella will be attending and selling copies there. I've gotten the final art pieces and text from Victoria Biggers for the TTV scrapbook, so I'll be finalizing that book and turning it in soon. I still plan to work on some new Harvey comic stories with previous podcast guest Eric Schenauer. And I'm still waiting for the Warren Kramer book from my publisher, and I'm still working on my own Light Up Your Life travel agency, and of course the Mad Book. Today's show is actually a two-parter. Author, writer, and publisher J. David Spurlock spoke with me for an extended time about the late, great Wally Wood, covering Wood's years at EC and at MAD. He knows virtually all things Wood. Here he is, the director of the Wallace Wood estate, J. David Spurlock. Okay, on the phone I have J. David Spurlock, and uh, today we're going to talk about the great Wally Wood. But before that, uh, David, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in comic books and publishing and other things. I wanted, you know, I was inspired. I I was a kid in the 60s. I was inspired by comics. I started out as a big uh, Marvel fan, primarily. There were a few things I was... Uh, exposed to right about that time when I was first starting to read comics like uh, some of the mad paperbacks but but uh, I started out mainly in Marvel and then I started getting hip to other stuff like the Warren magazines and some you know DC stuff uh, and then it took me a while to go backwards to um, to EC which became you know a huge influence mm-hmm. but I wanted to, so all of this inspired me. I was always drawn to the artists, the creators. Okay, mm-hmm. you know, some people, a lot of people, what they cared about were the characters, and I cared about characters, uh, but I cared to care about the characters the most that happened to have a creator that really inspired me. You know, whether it's Fantastic Four by Kirby, or Thor by Kirby, or um, or uh, Nick Fury, Agent of Shield by Steranko, or Thunder Agents or Daredevil by Wally Wood, you know, it, you know, it was, I was always drawn to the creators, and so that inspired me to want to create comics, and I started drawing my little infantile comics as far back as I can remember. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I got out of school in the 70s, 
you still had to live within commuting distance in New York to work for the major comics publishers. This is not only pre-computer, but it's pre-faxes and pre-FedEx. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you could live in Jersey or in Connecticut, you know, but you had to be close enough you could drive in and talk to an editor or to show samples. And, and, I, and I did. I was living in Dallas. Uh, so I, I studied commercial art and went into non-comics illustration and design. Uh, after some years, I became involved with and ultimately president of the Dallas Society of Illustrators. Mm. But this love of comics never went far away. I actually, the first thing I put out of my own, I did kind of a, a almost like an underground thing around 1980, 81. Uh, but I didn't have any distribution contract. I just, you know, blind faith, uh, you know, build it and they will come mentality you know print, <laughs> yeah. print it print it and people will read it but it was a little trickier than that and so uh that was called badge mm. named after the cream song mm-hmm. and um uh there are some copies some years later when i started when i got a distribution contract we did that kind of had a, like a warehouse bond to some of those and we sent some of those out through diamond eventually later in the 90s so there are some copies of Badge out there that can be found, but they are, they are very rare. Um, and so that's the earliest thing I did. But but it was like later after I'd been doing illustration, graphic design, it started calling me back. I said, well, this time I'm, I don't want to lose money. I can't afford to lose money. I'm going to research the business. And I researched the business for about a year before I tried publishing again. This was about 92 I wrote to Jack Kirby, who I knew. Kirby and I became friends uh, around 1977. And I wrote to him. Uh, I was in touch with John Carbonero, who controlled the rights to Thunder Agents at the time. I was, I was talking to him about doing a relaunch of Thunder Agents. And I was talking to different people about possibly working on that, including Kirby, Ditko, Ditko was game. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dan Atkins, I wrote to, he was game. Um, but ultimately my love of illustration, non-comics illustration, kind of avant-garde art, a lot of the illustrators I knew, like Baron Story and Marshall Arisman, their work was actually very avant-garde, and and they were tr- kind of bringing fine art influences into the illustration work, mm-hmm. and they were becoming big inspirations to some, some early graphic novelists like George Pratt and Kent Williams and Bill Sienkiewicz and Dave McKean, people like that. So I kind of created, not only did I want to create my own comics, but I wanted to work, I wanted to know personally and work with the talents who had inspired me to want to create comics. Mm. And that would be people like Kirby, Steranko, Wood, Frazetta, Williamson, etc. So I established Vanguard as my publishing entity in 1993 and I kind of created a, a hybrid of kind of an avant-garde art magazine and comics anthology which was called Tales from the Edge mm-hmm. that started in and we launched Tales from the Edge in, in 93 and so it was a it was a very interesting eclectic crossing of, of comics talents and non-comics illustrators but giving them a free forum in some ways similar to uh, what Wood did with Witsin in the in the 60s, you know, giving the talent uh, uh, as much freedom as we possibly could mm-hmm. uh, to get as creative as they could, you know, instead of just saying, oh, here's a script, illustrate this. No, I'm like, okay, 
you've got total creative freedom. What can you do with it? And so we had, I had Baron Story in, in all the first 10 issues, had uh, a lot of Marshall Erisman covers, some Erisman on the inside. Uh, but gradually, but most of those, and Diamond told me early on, anthologies don't sell. <laughs> you know, we had some, we had some George Pratt, uh, we, we had uh, Dennis Calero's first published work was uh, Adaptation. He was a big Sting fan, and he got the rights to adapt a Sting song in the comics format. So it's very interesting material there, which in some ways, some people I could, you know, might compare to early Vertigo material. And actually, we launched at the same time Vertigo did, yeah. uh, right, right around in 93. Yeah. Uh, the, the difference was Vertigo had Warner Brothers money behind him. <laughs> right. <laughs> and and I, I had like a credit card for a couple thousand dollars limit. So, uh, but, uh, so, started with Tales from the Edge, and then by by the end of the 90s, I had moved to the New York area, and a couple of issues, uh, Edge didn't sell well, didn't really make money. It was kind of a, almost an art-for-art-sake type publication. But we did a couple of special issues that were devoted to one creator. Uh, we did an all-Pat Boyette issue. We did an all-Marshall Erisman issue. We did an all-Sinkevich issue, Bill mm-hmm. Sinkevich, and we did an all-Saranko issue. Mm-hmm. And the, the Saranko, in particular, did very well. And so I'm like, well... You know, I'm my background, my graphic design and production background. I could easily, and and my knowledge of the industry and the talents, you know, easily produce books on artists. That would be, you know, as interesting to me as even sitting drawing my own comics. Which in Tales from the Edge, I was doing a thing called the Space Cowboys, a character I created, and it ran originally in Tales from the Edge, and then. There's some solo uh, Space Cowboy issues as well. But once we had, once it was clear that the best-selling issues we had, the only ones that really made money were when we did an issue on one artist. By the time I moved, I was in New York in the late 90s. I expanded and we launched uh, the first ever comics-related uh, comic artist-related sketchbook line. Mm-hmm. There had been just a couple of sketchbooks prior but there wasn't a line it right. was just a like a one-off thing uh, yeah. uh, Tundra had done two sketchbooks they did a George Pratt sketchbook was which is basically preliminaries and stuff for his World War One graphic novel he did for DC there was a Kent Williams sketchbook both of those were Tundra and those were pretty new at the time like early 90s mm-hmm. publications yeah there had been somebody had done a Kaluta sketchbook and somebody had done a Sienkiewicz sketchbook. The Sienkiewicz, I, I may have been Fanographics. I mm-hmm. can't remember who did the yeah, Kaluta. Sure. Yeah. And so those were about the only ones. And now I'm talking about a, what I consider a real book. It's got an ISBN number. It's perfect bind. It's you know it's not a fanzine. It's not saddle stitched. It's it's sold through bookstores as well as comic shops. Right. You know, it's it's a it's a it's an, a real book. There had been two Wallace Wood sketchbooks around 1980, but those were, you know, saddle stitch, which is basically stapled, and those were only sold basically kind of like fanzines through comic shops and mail order. Mm. You know, they didn't go they didn't go into the major book trade. 
Whereas, you know, when we launched the, the Vanguard line of sketchbooks in the in the nineties, uh, you know, we we didn't have bookstore distribution and ISBN numbers and perfect binding and all that. We were doing full blown books, and so we did. Uh, we launched with Al Williamson sketchbook, then the Neil Adams sketchbook, Wallace Wood sketchbook, Jeffrey Jones, John Buscema, John Romita, etc. But with my background with the Society of Illustrators, and I was also teaching on the side as adjunct art professor at various universities, uh, when I moved up north, I started in Texas. I taught at the University of Texas. When I moved up north, I was, uh, started at the Kubert School. Hmm. I was teaching there, and, and I always liked to credit Joe. He was like the first guy that gave me work when I first moved north. Mm. And then, but very soon after that, I met Joe Orlando, who was vice president at DC at the time and associate uh, uh, publisher of Mad Magazine. I was already starting to work on a wood biography, mm. which was ultimately, ultimately titled Wally's World. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I went to interview Joe and up at his office, which overlooked the David Letterman show. <laughs> I, I would look out his corner office window and I'm looking down at the marquee for, you know, the Ed Sullivan's right, theater right. Letterman <laughs> show. That's high rent district, you know, yeah. in Manhattan. You know, that's, and uh, so, but Joe and I hit it off immediately. We became instant, very close. Yeah. And Joe had a number of protégés through his years, and I, be, and I, it's kind of like I became his last protégé. And he, mm-hmm. he, he was teaching at School of Visual Arts in Manhattan, and Wood had actually attended school there uh, about 1947, 48, right after the war, about 48. And um, and a lot of the top talents either went to school there over the decades or they taught there. Eisner taught there for many, many years. Uh, uh, Kurtzman taught there. Orlando was teaching there. Orlando got Infantino to teach there, which after Infantino was no longer running D.C., he continued to draw comics but he didn't make any public appearances. Hmm. And so once Orlando talked to Infantino into teaching at School of Visual Arts, that was the only place anyone could be in the master's presence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because yeah. he wasn't yeah. making any, he wasn't doing any conventions or anything like that. Um, so I mean, he introduced me to Infantino, and the three of us, I, I sometimes refer to us as the three musketeers, we became very, very close very quickly. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, so I, I ended up teaching the School of Visual Arts and, and eventually launched a couple of scholarship funds there, a Steranko-related scholarship fund and the Wally Wood uh, scholarship fund. Um, but all of that, the, my teaching, my, my involvement with Society of Illustrators, that all connects to my interest in creator rights. Mm-hmm. And so the relationships I were, was building with all these famous artists, many of which had inspired me when I was a kid reading comics in the 60s and early 70s, um, you know, I started helping them on other things. And in the broadest sense, I really see Vanguard that way, is it's about promoting and helping the creators. And in the publishing part of it, that's just like one department in a way, whether Mm -hmm. I'm yeah. You know, helping to book them into making appearances at, at comic conventions or helping them look over uh, contracts some other publisher has sent them or, you know, anything like that. You know, I've helped some of them get some 
settlements or compensation out of major publishers for work they did decades earlier hmm. you know where they just they guess they you know I like the the reality is for the the for the largest part the creators of comics are freelancers right they don't get a pension the companies you know most of the time no publishers paying their uh, no one publishers paying their unemployment tax on them they're, they're not set up to get any unemployment if they're out of work they're not getting their health care covered by anyone they're working for you know it's it's a tough life to work as a freelance uh, creator whether you're a writer or an artist <clears throat> so it's uh, some of these properties that are actually created by freelancers that freelancers may get paid to draw a couple of issues of a comic mm-hmm. but while they are while they drew and or wrote a couple of issues they introduced new characters that went on to make millions of dollars right yeah and and far too often especially in the 60s and 70s and uh, and 80s uh, they get little, if any, compensation. You know, mm-hmm. as Stranko says, the only thing Marvel ever paid him for was to put either lines or words on paper. Yeah. Okay? He says, if you're working for General Motors and you come up with a concept for a new, uh, a new part that's going to make the car work better or a new or a new circuit or a new system that's going to make the car work better or a new car design, you get paid for that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's all, that's all, uh, research and development. Uh, and, but the comics publishers aren't paying for research and development. You know, if you, uh, basically all these characters were created by, by people who their basic thought was, Oh, if, you know, I, you know, somebody creates the Flash or the Green Lantern or whoever it is, Captain Midnight, and they they say, "Oh, I got an idea for a new character." The publisher says, "Oh, yeah, yeah, I like that. That sounds good." The idea is, if you came up with the idea, that they're going to hire you to work on it, yeah. and they might do that. Then usually they did, mm-hmm. and they might, but you had no guarantee how long you would work on it. Exactly. And they may they basically take it away from you. Jack right. Kirby had all kinds of problems. You know, he was very frustrated. He would create all these characters. Marvel would publish them. And then all of a sudden, one day, Stan would say, okay, I'm going to move you to another book. You know, you created Silver Surfer, but I'm going to have John Buscema draw the Silver Surfer book. But, uh, you know, you, you work on something else. Right. <laughs> and, you know, that, that didn't endear either Stan or the company to the creators, things like that. It's like, well, you know, I'm invested here. This is my creation. Well, yeah, but, uh, you know, you can't afford a lawyer, so you, you, we're just going to pay you page rates. And luckily, you know, on a rare occasion, there's been a couple times I've been able to help someone get a little a little better compensation, you know, for work they significant creative work they did years later. So that's, to me, that's very important. There's nothing in, you know, in my you know what? What can what can we do as an individual on art to make it a better place while we're here? You know right. that's 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 a mission statement. <laughs> and I like I like art. I like comics. If there's something I can do to help a creator, you know, you know, I'm there's nothing more important to me. So so that's a big part. And and eventually, 
Um, you know, so my relationships would go into different directions like that. And over the years, I've worked with lots of people, you know, Steranko for about 25 years right. and Patino for about 20 up until the, he passed away. Uh, Frazetta, Neil Adams, Frank Werner, various people. And eventually, this came to the attention, and I had interactions with the Wood Estate. Oh, okay. Uh, and eventually, uh, the guy that was managing the Wood Estate was Bill Pearson, who was a very close associate of Woods. And the the executor was uh, another very close friend and associate of Woods, which is a guy named Jack Robinson. Mm-hmm. And so I had, when we did the the Wood sketchbook, I had worked with Bill. Pearson, and that was a, a good success. And we we went into uh, a second or second or third printing on that. So that and that was you know one of the the better successes of things that were done you know in the many years that Bill managed the estate. And then uh, we we did some other projects. And at some point, Bill says to me. Um, you know, every project that you work on does better than the ones I do without you. <laughs> and I've been managing the estate for I think it was about thirty years. It's yeah. from the time from the time Wood died in at the end of eighty one to uh, two thousand twelve. I think it was in two thousand eleven we had this conversation, oh. and he he said, you know, I've got some other things I'd like to focus on my own books I want to write and stuff. You know, would you be interested in in taking over as the primary management? Hmm. And uh, I'm like, yes. <laughs> and so, but then we, but at the same time, and I mean, there was no artist. You know, here's a guy who likes trying to get artists their due. You know, whether it's a simple credit or some money they're due or whatever it is. To you know, these guys, I know how hard they work because I'm an artist too. And that it's a it's it's a tough life. It's yeah. not an easy it's not an easy life. Uh, Wood once said it was like uh, uh, sentencing yourself to solitary confinement to a life sentence of solitary confinement. <laughs> and so and that was one of the things with the Society of Illustrators that now it's a little bit better now because we have social media and you you can communicate so much easier now with your peers right yeah but a lot of the worst things that happen i mean some of the biggest stories in the history of comics that are still in the forefront are things about you know kirby and ditko and people creating characters of marvel in the 60s and and the company benefiting so much more and them not really getting any ongoing uh, royalties or anything like that out of it and these things are still very much in the public eye, yeah. and and I and I find you know say creator rights issues like the return of original art yeah. or re- reprint money things like that are as important as anything in the history of the industry. And the, about the only thing that I could compare was you know what happened in the fifties with the McCarthy era politics, you know looked its ugly head over at the comics industry and practically the whole industry became crippled by it with the Keith Alver hearings and all that. Right. You know, that's yeah. another story. But you can't, if you're serious 
a comics historian, if you're really, or if you're just a reader who really enjoys to read about the history and know about the creators and the history of the, the business, you know, these are the the real big stories, important stories that that rise to the top time and time again. Yeah, and they're at every uh, pub- they're at every publisher because Harvey has stories like that about Richie Rich. Yeah. Archie does mm-hmm. about creator rights. Uh, you know, any, you can name any publisher: Gold Key, Dell, whatever. Yeah. You know. <laughs> so, um, uh, why the particular interest in Wally Wood? I mean, I know Wally Wood's a great artist, but I mean, why did you have a personal interest in it? Well, I, I discovered Wood in the sixties. At the time, he had he he had been with EC, and EC at a certain point they stopped regular comics publishing. Uh, and then they just focused on Mad, which had been a comic book. And then to keep away from being censored, they made it a full-size magazine. So he was with Mad for, and he had been with EC for like 15 years. So a very long run, very long, successful run with EC and Mad. And uh, but once he left Mad, he quickly segued there. Uh, right around 64 from 64 and 65 from Matt uh, to Marvel and then to Thunder Agents and and he, and he did other work for Tom Goldkey and, and uh, Warren and some other people too um, so it was right around that time and so I was seeing him just right as he was on Daredevil and then starting launching Thunder Agents. He left Marvel. He actually created the Thunder Agents while he was doing most of his Marvel work. Hmm. And and there's a, a direct quote from Wood where he said he pitched he he pres- he showed No Man to Stan. And Stan's response was that's a really good idea. Uh, I would take it if I could take credit for it. And and then Stan just laughed, yeah. and then they just, they didn't talk anymore about it. So, but he got this great offer from a, a, a paperback publisher because comics were coming on strong in the '60s. There was a great resurgence after pr- the whole industry practically died in the in the mid to late '50s, and so they were coming back strong in the '60s with a lot of help from the Batman TV show and a lot of creativity coming out of Marvel. Yeah. Uh, but really, the Batman TV show was probably the number one. But the other thing was we had Boomer Generation, and they were the perfect age. You know, whether they were watching reruns of Universal monster films on late night TV, which created a great resurgence of that and led to the creation of Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine, or they were, you know, starting to read, read comics. They were the right age group. It was a huge audience. And uh, and it was and and also there was just something in the and that's something that's kind of hard to explain to somebody that wasn't alive in the sixties. There, there was just a sense that anything was possible. Yeah. You know that you knew that there was trouble in the world. You knew there were concerns, uh, but. You, you didn't tend to, you, nobody had the feeling that everything was so ratcheted down right. that nothing could be done about it there was there was an optimism that you know if we work together we can we can make things better you know whether it was 
artistically in the music scene, in the art scene, in the comics, uh, in the politics. You know, there was this just great explosion of culture uh, in the 60s. And, you know, it, it's not just in one area. You know, you, whether you're, you're talking about it, you know, 60s politics or 60s, you know, the pop art movement or... Uh, or the music scene, uh, but the comic scene is part of that. It's all the pop culture of that era. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily refer to the politics as being pop culture, but you know, <laughs> sometimes that would creep in there as well. Yeah, of course. But it was right in that time period. That's when I discovered Wood, and it was just rec- Wood was. And I've heard a lot of other people speak to this too. A lot of people say, "Well, the first artist I ever came to recognize their styles on." were Wood and Ditka. Yeah. And I think I think the fact that they had simple short names may have helped eight, nine, ten year old readers <laughs> who who might not, you know, catch a, a longer name. Uh, but they also had very recognizable styles. Yes. And uh, so so that helped. So and then I would say you know, you can add Kirby to that mix. So, and I, I see Kirby did going wood as a great triumvirate, and for a small golden window from from two thirds of the way through '64 toward the end of '65, for one one year, Wood came to Marvel, and. Uh, and, and Stan knew that he was a superstar. There, Stan, there was, Stan was thrilled to have Wood come to uh, uh, to Marvel. And for the readers, Marvel readers at the time, you know, Kirby was king for, for good reason. Kirby did the lion's share of the work, and he was creating the lion's share of the characters. Mm-hmm. And so people, you know, that were young then, it's and still to this day, if you don't really study it, you know, with a historian's point of view or, or fervor, uh, and you just, if it's just a nostalgic thing to you, oh, I grew up reading Marvel Comics, Kirby's King, that's the end of the story, you don't realize <laughs> that, you know, Wood, Wood was was the star, Kirby was the star of Fantastic Four and Thor and some Marvel Comics. Those books were selling about 300,000 copies per issue. Okay? It's between between 250,000 copies per issue and 300,000 copies. In today's market, that would be a massive success. Right. Okay? But in those days, well, meanwhile, Wood was the star artist on Mad Magazine mm-hmm. for over oh, a decade. He was the only artist in every single issue the first decade of Mad. Right. Mm-hmm. I think. And, and that, that, that was selling... The Mad was selling it was, three to five times. Yeah, it was in the millions what, by that point. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Eventually, it got to two million. Their yeah. top, their top issue was after Wood left. It was the adaptation of the Poseidon adventure. Right. Mm-hmm. I think it was probably around 1972 or something like that. Mm-hmm. That 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 was top just a little bit over two million. But all but when Wood was there. Let's say shortly before he went over to Marvel, say sixty three, sixty four, they were selling a million copies. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's still that's three times the best selling Marvel, uh, the best selling Marvel comic, or the best selling Jack Kirby comic. So so, and he had won all kinds of awards. 
He was a member of the National Cartoonist Society. Nobody at Marvel was winning national awards, or it was rare. There was the um, the Alley Awards they had started, named after Alley Oop, mm. and <laughs> that that was kind of a, a fan award. And that was that that happened through uh, those would be noted in fan scenes, including uh, Alter Ego. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alter Ego would would they were kind of uh, managing the Alley Awards, and so everyone would vote. They'd say, "Okay, here's our categories. Here are the contenders," and everybody would vote for their favorite artist. Frequently, Infantino would win. <laughs> we're talking early to mid '60s, but Kirby and Fa- Fantastic Four would win like most popular book frequently, uh, but Infantino kept tended to sweep the uh, the best artist uh, category. Uh, and then, but so so Wood was Wood was a superstar, and he was he had won uh, a number of he was winning a number of National Cartoonist Society awards, and that that was a much bigger, much more uh, you know respected institution than the Alley Awards, which was handled by a fanzine. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I got into Wood all in, in that time period in the, in the '60s, and he was just always, um, you know, one of the top guys. Uh, the fact that I was primarily reading Marvel at the time, and that he was only at Marvel for a short period, didn't matter because when he went to Tower, I was hip to it. I knew, you know, me and my friends, we knew he was at Tower and he was doing Thunder Agents, and we were buying those books. <laughs> the, the distribution they got wasn't as good as Marvel's. But uh, we knew he was there, and we bought him for the wood. You right. know, it's like your your favorite artist goes to a different book. You know, are you going to lose track of him, or are you going to follow him over to that book? Yeah. You yeah. know, when Kirby left Marvel and went over to uh, DC, there's no telling how oh, hundred thousand, surely a hundred thousand readers followed Kirby over to DC. Oh yeah, it's like your favorite sports player or something. You know. Yeah. <laughs> They're MVPs. You got to watch them <laughs> and right. follow their every move. Um, and so, that same time, even though he had left Mad in '64, mm-hmm. uh, at '65 he's at Marvel. At the end of '65, he launches Thunder Agents at Tower, and then '66, '67, he's he's at Tower primarily. He was doing other work too, but but that was his his big thing because he had, you know. He had kind of uh, a lot of creative freedom there on Thunder Agents. He was kind of running the adventure books for Tower as kind of a freelance editor, uh, creative director. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at that same time, mad paperbacks were very popular. Yep. And and frequently, not only would his work be, you know, from earlier issues of Mad Magazine be included in the paperbacks, but frequently he would be the lead story because they knew how popular he was and they were still proud that they had all this great wood wood material and they were putting it in their paperbacks. Right. <laughs> we will be back after this message. Hi, I'm George Takei. You know me as Helmsman Sulu on Star Trek. When I'm not busy going Warp Factor 8, I like to beam down to Lee's Comics in Mountain View and spend a lazy afternoon reading comics classics from Marvel to DC, from Dark Horse to Fantagraphics, and everything in between. So please, spend some time here at Lee's Comics and spend your hard-earned cash. <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.
Fun Ideas podcast is made possible by listeners like you and from Lee's Comics of California, selling you what your mother threw out since 1982, online at leescomics.com. And now back to the Fun Ideas podcast. So uh, let's kind of take a look at uh, Wood's life. Uh, can you give us like a brief bio of Wood and how he grew up, what his influences were and things like that? He was, uh, Wood was a country kid from Minnesota. Uh, he loved uh, comics, uh, newspaper strips, comic books, pulps, movie serials. And he decided by the probably by the time he was nine years old that he was determined to make a living as a comics artist mm-hmm. and he started working that direction and, and, and then he ended up going into World War II uh, and then after World War II he relocated to New York City and he he worked for Fox Comics he worked for Avon Comics uh, eventually he grew to superstar status at, working at EC Mm-hmm. Uh, and really, the breakout year for him was 1952. Mm-hmm. If you look at his work, he was working at DC in 50 and 51. But you can see he's he's learning, he's getting better. But by 52, it's like, oh yeah, man, he's ruling. The yeah. guy is he, the guy is ruling. I mean, no, nobody could touch him. I think you know, that's the, the first year his style kind of was nailed down that you could say yeah. this is a wood, this is and wood frequently, art. He could work in any genre. He could do superhero stuff, science fiction. He uh, he could do crime comics. He could do humor comics. He could do anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was working on titles like Weird Science, Shock Suspense Stories, Frontline Combat, Tales from the Crypt. Uh, but they had other artists that were like really, you know, that some artists are more suited to one genre than another. Wood could work in any genre. But they had Jack Davis was great for horror, and he was great for humor. They had Graham Ingalls. Graham Ingalls was best for horror. So they had a bunch of guys that were really good for horror. So gradually Wood was doing less for the horror comics, and he was doing more for the shock suspense stories and crime suspense stories were really revolutionary comics. They were Mm -hmm. social commentary. Right. Uh, And they handled very hard-hitting subjects like Ku Klux Klan and and uh, things like that, and even in DC's war comics, uh, Two Fisted Tales, Frontline Combat, those were not. You know, all the other war comics were like gung ho. Yeah. You know, and that that Pro was war. the mentality back then. <laughs> Basically, the 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 media was like, if you're going to do war, you know, it's Sometimes it could get to the point that you know it, you'd be rightfully referred to as, as pro-American propaganda, mm-hmm. but or whatever whatever they were pushing at the time. But it was all very gung ho, rah rah, you know, go America, let's go kick ass mentality. <laughs> and the EC comics were the first ones to deal with it on a more adult level. That hey, you know, war is hell. Right. It's not just a thing. There's a reason why there's a saying there. And that, you know, we may have reason that we have to go to war, but, you know, it's you're human beings. You may remember the Twilight Zone 
where this guy's in World War Two, and all of a sudden he wakes up one morning and he's the enemy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't <laughs> know. Like, that what episode, what's going on? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and and all that is that's a device. That's that's a literary device by Serling or whoever wrote that particular episode to give us that fresh fresh perspective. Put us in the other guy's shoes. Put us. Let us see through his eyes. You know, and so that so that for the benefit of humanity, so that you know we're more fully integrated human beings. And so this is you know EC, and they were criticized for being gory, and they were gory, mm-hmm. but they regularly ended with some uh, poetic justice, right, right. <laughs> you know, some some O. Henry-type twist ending, but the twist ending always had, you know, whether you, whether you said it was a moral or not, there was a point, and the point, there was some sort of redemption. There was some sort of, no matter how gory, no matter how dark, how mean, how gritty that story was, the ultimate point was of value. It was something for you to take with you. It's literature, you know. Mm-hmm. Are we selling this literature with word balloons in comic book style? And are most of our readers ten to twelve years old? Maybe so. But you know, my father read comics in the forties. Well, he grew out of them at a point. But he told me he says the last ones I ever read were the ECs after I was grown mm-hmm. uh, he was working for a telephone company he'd take his lunch he'd go down to a little greasy spoon diner and he'd pick up an EC yeah. you know, it's like, and, and, and one reason was because they started adapting Bradbury mm-hmm. and Brad, Bradbury Ray Bradbury he's not just the greatest science fiction author of all time he's one of the greatest authors of all time in any genre his right. work is not limited to his genre. Mm-hmm. Likewise, the themes in EC stories were not limited to comic book stories for for ten year old masses. Yeah. You know, it went beyond there, and that's why it inspired such fandom because yeah. people knew they were getting substance. Yeah. Okay, I'm laying my dime down. Yes, it was only a dime in those. <laughs> yeah. I'm laying my dime down. But I'm not just getting 10, 20 minutes of entertainment that, you know, like a like a cartoon with a punchline out of the newspaper. You're getting something much more significant here. You, you know, the people who are writing and drawing these comics really care about the work they're doing. It's not just a way for them to make a buck. And that is what brings a loyal audience. That's what makes a connection. You know, when you're like... You know, I relate to who's writing these stories. You know, they're they're touching me in some way, and and so that's where you build your loyal audience. And so people, you know, would they had EC had the uh, the best stable of talent: Jack Davis, Wood, um, Graham Ingalls, uh, you know, Krigstein, Al Williamson. Rosetta did a little bit for him, usually in association with Williamson. You know, Joe Orlando, just a fabulous Johnny Craig. Yeah. All those talents, you know, whether you recognize the names or not, they're definitely worth researching because they brought a level of intelligence to the work uh, beyond what they were being paid for. And part of that was a camaraderie 
and they there was kind of like uh, a friendly competition too. It's like, hey, you know, and and they all said anytime they would come in to deliver a job, they all wanted to see the latest thing that would turn down. <laughs> it's like he was he he was the gold standard. Yeah, and uh, and so. So yeah, so I got in it. As far as influences, the short list of wood influences be Hal Foster, Al Raymond, uh, Alex Raymond, um, Milton Kniff, and Will Eisner. Hmm. And most of your talent that came into the business in the '40s and early '50s, they would all say Foster, Raymond, and Kniff. Those are coming from newspaper strips. Those were the grand. That was the grand triumvirate of. Uh, adventure newspaper strip artists, not car- not humorous cartoon strips. You know, Foster started with Tarzan, then he creates Prince Valiant. Raymond's doing Flash Gordon, Jungle Jim, uh, uh, Secret Agent X Nine, and uh, Milkenes doing Terry and the Pirates, and later he did Steve Canyon. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, but Wood was also into Eisner. Eisner had Spirit, mm-hmm. which was odd. It was distributed through the newspapers but instead of running in a strip format it was its own little booklet it's kind of like a little comic book it's not it didn't have the glossy cover like a comic book but it's it it was a something you could pull out from the paper it's his own little standalone piece insert within the paper you could expand wood's influences to disney roy crane walt kelly and others but uh he but he actually cited his number one inspiration is Foster but all those yeah. guys I named were all, all helped to inspire Wood and he had a way of taking their influence and making it his own mm-hmm. and so he could tell and there was a, a story I heard from one of the guys that worked with Wood and our, our friend was visiting Wood and he says you know I really love Wood trees <laughs> he's like and Wood's like what do you mean Wood trees <laughs> he says the way the way you draw trees, you draw the most fantastic trees. He says those aren't wood trees; those are foster trees. Because <laughs> he learned trees, learned to draw trees from Hal Foster. And if you look at Prince Valiant, you'd be hard pressed to come up with better trees than. So it's like in Wood's head, he's still drawing Hal Foster trees. Right, <laughs> that's funny. But but he would take these different influences. You know some of the romance of Raymond, some of the polish of Raymond, but some of the organic qualities and compositional qualities of, of Foster. And then when it came to Kniff, Kniff was a good storyteller. Kniff was, you know, in some regards, a better storyteller than Foster and Raymond. They all had, they were all masters, but they all had, you know, unique things. Kniff's art was simpler. He didn't put as much detail in it. He did a lot of things in silhouette. That was a big influence on Toth and a lot of other artists. Mm-hmm. And but um, and, and 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 also uh, 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 John Romita, who you know was the top Spider-Man artist after Steve Ditko, uh, who helped to create Spider-Man. So Kniff was a huge influence too. But but Wood had a way of of blending these influences and it, it coming out uniquely Wood. I mean, you could still spot. You know, oh, this this is a little toward the Foster, or this is a little bit to the Raymond, or he's using a lot of silhouettes here. This is a little to the Kniff, you know, or here's an interesting uh, camera angle. You know, maybe he got that by, from Eisner. But when it came, once he drew it, once he inked it, 
it became wood and it was very recognizable as wood you know the better educated people could pick out these little elements it's it's like a recipe you know okay we'll put the onions in we'll put the foster in we'll put the we'll put the 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 cabbage in we'll put the raymond in we'll we'll put the uh, the celery in we'll put the canif in <laughs> but after after it all brews and stirs together and you serve it up on the plate it's wally wood mm-hmm Wow, <laughs> and uh, then he he ended up working for Eisner, right, for a while. Yeah, so. yeah. Uh, he started with Eisner as a, a minor assistant when he first came to New York. He had all these drawings he had done. He was through his whole life, all the way back through childhood. Here's a very interesting thing: there was a fire. the The Wood Estate had a fire at Pearson's place some years ago, and. The vast majority of the original art that the Wood Estate had, unfortunately, went up in the ah, fire. Ah. And it, it is <laughs> it is the it is the evil gift that keeps on. Every now and then, I'll call Bill and say, "Hey, whatever happened to fire? Uh, whatever happened to this? The fire? Uh, whatever happened to that? The, what happened to that masterpiece? That you know that Cleo giant that fabulous Cleopatra piece?" fire it's not not pleasant but one of the few things that survived the fire was there was one filing cabinet you know the when when something gets hot it swells up and that the metal in this filing cabinet kind of swelled and it kind of helped to seal the filing cabinet so the flames couldn't get inside the the heat got to it the Mm -hmm. cabinet was hot as hell literally and but the flames couldn't actually get inside so what was in there a lot of it it singed the the edges of the paper was singed so if you ever see wood drawings with a a burnt edge that (laughs) actually kind of authenticates them because (laughs) because that that's some of the rare things that survived the fire but they did get the edges singed (laughs) uh but a most of what was in that one filing cabinet that survived was childhood drawings, mm. and 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 we have now scanned all those childhood drawings that the estate still had after the fire, and there's got to be a couple thousand of them. Wow! And and through the entire timeline, from the earliest childhood drawings, he was creating his own strips and his own characters out of two thousand childhood drawings there's only like maybe three drawings that you can recognize as someone else's character he wasn't drawing Batman he wasn't drawing Superman <laughs> there was I found one drawing of the shadow which is it was a pulp character mm-hmm. I found one drawing of the spider which was another big pulp character mm-hmm. and there might be one more in there mm-hmm. uh, you know it may be a radio character or a pulp character but um you know, but the, my point is that he was, to him, it wasn't just about drawing. He was creating stories, mm-hmm. and he was creating characters from day one. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing that, that we, we, we see in that. Uh, but when he came to New York, so he's showing this portfolio of, and his material varied quite a bit. There was horror material, there was like fantasy material, there may be like some, you know, fairy tale type characters, there was humor material. Shrunken uh, heads, decapitated heads. There's some pretty wild stuff in his his youth work, and uh, uh, expect to see a book collecting a lot of that within the next year or two. Okay, <laughs> but 
but he com- he comes to New York. He starts going around to all these publishers, and uh, this is about forty eight, right after he got out of out of the. Uh, he was a he was a paratrooper in in Japan, and and so he comes to New York after he gets out of. Uh, it was and at that time, it was the paratroopers were part of the army. It's the Army Air Corps, and then gradually things start shifting to Air Force. But he was in the Army Air Corps as a paratrooper. And so he comes to New York, and um, he goes around to all the publishers, and everybody's turning him down. Mm-hmm. And he's in one office, and he's got his wings on. The <laughs> uh, If you were in the Army Air Corps, you got, you, know, you got a medal. And people who got out of the war, they wanted people to know, I was in the service, I fought for our comp country and it might stir some patriotism and you might give a guy a chance right okay? <laughs> so he's sitting in this lobby waiting to go in to see this editor to try to get some work and he, he sees another guy there who's also got wings and they strike up a conversation the other guy turns out to be john Severn. oh wow <laughs> and so uh which a a uh uh you know a a uh a fan of cracked like yourself would yes. be intimately familiar with Mr. Sever. Yes. And DC. <laughs> yeah. So um, they start talking, and, and so John says, "Well, let me let me look at your stuff." So he shows him his samples. He says, "This is great." And Wood says, "Yeah, but I haven't got any work. Mm-hmm. You know, I I can't afford to live in New York without any work." I'm, he says, "This is the last place." He says, "I've seen every other publisher in town." Everybody's turned me down, and if this guy doesn't hire me, I'm going to have to go back to Minnesota. Hmm. You know, I won't have any choice. And everyone's like, "This stuff is too good. You cannot go back to Minnesota. Hmm. You, you you will make it. You just got to find somebody. Somebody's got to be the first person to give you some work." So Wood was called in to see the editor first, and when he came out, John said, "How did it go?" He says, "He turned me down too." Wow. So John then says, "Look." I'm sharing a studio with a couple of other guys. Well, it turns out it was Harvey Kurtzman and Will Elder. <laughs> yeah. Okay? He says, come over and visit the studio if, you know, we may not have anything you can help us on, but it's just good to know people, to network. And so he did, and uh, he he went over there, and that's when he first met Harvey Kurtzman and Will Elder. Mm-hmm. And uh, so... They all liked the work, but at the same time, they said, well, we kind of see why you had been offered jobs. But, yes, there is a unique quality here, and you you need to get work because it's, you know, there's, it's obvious there's a lot of talent there, and you could go into all kinds of directions. At some point, uh, Harvey said, you know, Hogarth, Bern Hogarth, who took over the Tarzan newspaper strip from Hal Foster, Hogarth started up a school. And you can, as a veteran, you can go there and the government will pay your tuition. He says, do you think I really need to go back to school? He says, actually, you don't need to go to that school to learn to do artwork. You already know the art. But it's a great place to network and all the teachers are pros, including Eisner himself. Mm-hmm. And and you might end up getting a job assisting one of them. So 
I mean, not, did I say Eisner? I meant Hogarth, nope. including Hogarth, yeah. Hogarth yeah. himself. At that time, Eisner wasn't teaching it at the school. Mm-hmm. Hogarth was. And so, um, so he went and he enrolled. It was called the School for Cartoonists and Illustrators at the time. Right. Uh, and uh, some years later, they changed the name to School of Visual Arts. Mm-hmm. I ended up teaching there, you know, like I said, when I moved up north, I taught at the Cuber School, and then I went over to the School of Visual Arts. But, um, so he go, he's going there for a little while, and he did end up, uh, it kind of segued into him as, assisting Eisner and assisting uh, George Wonder, who had replaced Peniff um, on Terry and the Pirates. So when he started with Eisner, it was about like, probably late 48, maybe early 49, uh, but he quickly moved on. He was doing what normal assistants would do, which was sharpen pencils, empty waste paper baskets. After the regular artist would draw and then it would be inked, then they need someone to erase the leftover pencils. Uh, so only the inked art would be left on the board for to, to be shot. And then gradually you work your way up to helping to draw backgrounds and maybe do a little inking or maybe do a little lettering. So that's basically what he was doing when he start, first started with Eisner in late 48 or early 49. Mm-hmm. But then he quickly moved on and was doing, then pretty quickly he started getting work, doing his own work. And he started a studio with a couple of guys that he met at, uh, at school. And one of those was Harry Harrison. Okay. And Harry Harrison's great claim to fame is some years later, he, he became quite a famous science fiction author. He and Wood mm-hmm. bonded over their mutual love of science fiction. But Harrison wrote the story, which was originally called Make Room, Make Room, which was adapted into the film uh, Soil and Green. Right, right. That was a hugely successful science fiction film. That was one of the most successful science fiction films, you know, uh, around the time of, say, the first uh, Planet of the Apes. You know, before, if you're going to talk about very big science fiction films predating Star Wars, you're basically looking at Soil and Green, 2001 A Space Odyssey, and uh, Planet of the Apes. Yeah. So that was that was he was Wood's original partner coming out of school, and they opened the studio and they were getting work together. Um, but he, after Wood became the big success at EC by 1952, he was the undisputed greatest science fiction comics creator in America. Hmm. And uh, at that time, the spirit had been running for many years. By that point, and and Eisner had started to do some other type of work. He wasn't working full-time on Spirit. He had a number of assistants. He was started getting some contracts out of the government to do educational comics for the GIs. Right. And he was at that time, he was focusing more on that, and he would supervise, and he, he'd do a little work on the Spirit Strip, and he, and he had uh, Jules Pfeiffer, who became this fabulously brilliant you know, writer, screenplay writer, uh, and and cartoonist. Uh, years later, he was working as an assistant to, to Eisner at the time. So Eisner called Wood when Wood, his old assistant, is now the superstar, and told him the spirit was in trouble. Hmm. Uh, and as a last ditch effort to try to save the spirit, he wanted Wood to come in 
and to to take over the spirit, the art that Pfeiffer would write it, but inspired by Wood's success with science fiction, he wanted to take the spirit into outer space. Mm. Mm. And Pfeiffer was not a science fiction fan like Wood and and uh, Harry Harrison was, and he, you know, he would he'd lean more toward you know what the spirit had been doing before, which is you know kind of noiristic detective work. Right. And uh, so. Pfeiffer was not gung-ho about it, but, you know, Heiser said, this is what we're going to do with or without you. Pfeiffer <laughs> said, okay. And he, he, he wrote the story and would illustrate it, and Eisner uh, supervised it and edited it. Well, it was fabulous work, and it's it's legendary at this point. And, and for that combination of talents, uh, Eisner, Wood, and Pfeiffer working together, it's, you know, it's just, it's kind of mind-blowing that the three of those guys did work together yeah. <laughs> and and at the time it may look a little dated now you know now in the new century but you know there's a great quote from Eisner that he said decades after that work was done he says it's it's unbelievable how modern Woods work looked in 1952 yeah and that you know, you look at that hardware and his machinery. He's very famous for his rocket ships and his machinery. You know, there's a great scene where the spirit is looking out at the porthole of the rocket and his reflection of his, is there. You know, when you're by a window, a lot of times you'll see yourself reflected. But to try to draw that is very difficult. To try to draw that limited to comic book art in, in India ink is even more difficult. And, and you know you know or the moonscapes that Wood did were just fantastic they were practically photographic um, <laughs> so it was amazing stuff and it's, it's it's stood the test of time surprisingly well and decades later Reister wrote a little thing about it where he really complimented Wood about how modern it looked for decades afterwards now it is now very retro to us here in the 21st century right I like yeah. I, anytime I anytime I cite the 21st century, I'm tempted to end it with Buck. Like I'm talking to Buck Rogers, right? Journey, journey to the 21st century. You know, here in the 21st century, Buck, we do it this way. <laughs> uh, so they weren't able to. Unfortunately, they weren't able to save the spirit, but it, it it made a real gem. You know, right there at the end of the run, that has you know. Uh, been a gem that's still appreciated to this fate for comics enthusiasts right and um at that point i mean i guess uh he was uh this is wood uh was really heavily involved with ec so did he didn't have time much after spirit ended right to do anything else or did he do take on any other projects actually that's a subject that i have never seen anyone other than myself discuss And that is uh, a very important thing. If you if you get into detail about that that little stint on the outer space spirit, is that there was a fantastic launch by Wood, all puns intended. <laughs> and um, but after a few weeks, a few episodes. Uh, there was a little bit of it that wasn't Wood, mm. that he was getting some assistance, and he was getting assistance from Eisner's regular assistants. Mm. And, 
And the reason is because the fact of the matter is that Wood had more than anyone's full-time employment. It wasn't that he was on salary. That's not what I'm insinuating. I'm saying that he was already committed to EC. Yeah. He was he was he would be doing a story for every issue of Frontline Combat. Right. A story for every issue of Two Fisted Tales. <laughs> a story for every issue of Shock Suspense Stories. A story for every issue of Crime Suspense Stories. A story for every issue of Weird Science Fantasy. And frequently two stories for Weird Science. Yeah. Every issue. Right. That is enough work to keep three three guys busy. Yeah. Now. And then Mad was at what, it. <laughs> what what do you what do you do? I think this may have been just predating Mad right before the launch. Right. Of <laughs> what do you do when you have a now you have to realize something that whole generation. The ultimate success story was not drawing comic books. Even if they preferred the comic book format, the great successes, the people who got the respect and the people who made the real money were the newspaper strip artists. Mm -hmm. Those guys were famous. They were celebrated. They were celebrated. Articles would run in newspapers about what this newspaper cartoonist was up to. They didn't run articles in newspapers about what comic book artists were into. It was ba- is basically if you couldn't get work in a news with a newspaper strip, where do you go? Well, you can work for those cheap little smutty comic books. <laughs> you know, that's right. a little. You know, it's that's downscale. That's that was considered the bottom of the barrel for the entertainment industry. But the newspaper strips were considered like practically Hollywood. Right. And so that was the goal. So here we have Wood is now the superstarring in comic books, particularly in the in the science fiction genre, he is swamped with work and the phone rings. And it is his idol and mentor, one of his biggest inspirations, saying, would you please do me a favor and help save my strip? The strip that inspired Wood. And there is actually, I, t- I said how he created his own stuff, and you rarely saw him join someone else's character. In or, or there are a couple of childhood drawings where you can see he was directly learning from Eisner, where he he basically redrew an Eisner scene. Okay, so this is one of his biggest influences, an idol to him, saying, "I need your help. Mm-hmm. Please, please help me. The strip's going downhill." I think you might be able to resuscitate it. Mm-hmm. So, despite he ignored the fact that he needed sleep, <laughs> he ignored the fact that he was a normal human being who needed sleep and water and food, and didn't have any time. Pushed away time for sleep and food, and you know things like going to the bathroom. <laughs> I've got the spirit to draw. And it's not just a comic book. It's distributed nationwide through the newspapers. It was like a dream come true. He just didn't have the time to do it. But he didn't want to let his idol down. Right. So he accepted the gig. But he still had his obligations to EC, which was his primary living. 
that was the the, the, the lion's share is, is living. Mm-hmm. So yes, after a few weeks of working his ass off, turning out top quality work on the Eisner strip, uh, you know there was he, he he was short. Suddenly, his body demanded he sleep after a couple of weeks, <laughs> and and uh, things like that. And so so there were a couple episodes where he. You know, Eisner had to put a couple of his assistants in there to help finish it up, and you can see a little change in the in the style of the art there. Um, but that's exactly why that happened mm. was because Wood came to Eisner's aid at Eisner's request, despite the fact that he was already swamped with work. Mm-hmm. But that's that's why that happened. Mm. Got it. Okay. And then, you know, moving on, so, you know, he continued with EC to the end of the run, and of course, you know, long story about, you know, how EC folded with the comics code, and uh, then Mad took over. Um, You told me before we ever spoke right now, you know, that there was, that Wood basically helped save Mad, so how, how and why? This, this is another story that... (laughs) You know, once once the news, once the info gets out there, and this this story hasn't been well disseminated. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I put it into the biography that I uh, I wrote with my co-author Steve Starger of Wally's World. Um, you know, we we covered it in there, and I have said it. There are a number of Facebook groups, Wood groups, including the Wallace Wood Estate page, that uh, I I help to manage and I contribute to significantly and and I brought it up and there's an EC group but I was quite surprised recently when you know Roger Hill has this EC fanatic uh, fanzine he publishes gorgeous one of the greatest fanzines ever published and he comes up with great information and uh, he's done there was an EC associate Sid Check who worked in the the Wood Studio circa 1950, and and Roger Hill, who publishes his fan, EC Fanatic uh, publication, he's done the greatest research on Sid Check that anyone has ever done, hmm. and he should he should be applauded for that. And and Sid Check was a, a close associate of Wood, and he Sid Check may have been the first guy in the business to try to imitate Wood. And, and so the style <laughs> that most people know is Sid Check's style is some people will mistake it as Wood. Mm. Sometimes they won't know if it's not signed or they don't see the signature. They'll think, oh, well, you know, obviously Wood had a hand here. Well, he may have. And when they were working together in Wood's studio, they, may, they would, you know, help each other out. Uh, for his job, Wood came in, he, and he'd have to check, help him, or whatever. Or check may have an assignment, he may ask Wood to help. And so Wood, Orlando, in Orlando's style, he picked up a lot from Wood, too. They were all working there together. After a little while, Harry Harrison moved on, and, but Orlando and Sid Check and Roy Crinkle worked there with him for a while, mostly on backgrounds mm-hmm. in the Wood, original Wood studio. But once he got full-time with EC, they shut down the the larger wood studio because he's mostly working on his own now hmm. for the eastern um but as far as the saving of mad um so what happened was the founding editor on mad was harvey kurtzman and he is and kurtzman deserves all the credit he gets 
in regards to Matt. Kurtzman is seen as one of the true geniuses to come out of the comic book field. Mm-hmm. And his greatest success was Matt. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so uh, now he was looking to... Kurtzman was editing the EC uh, military books, Two Fisted Tales and Frontline Com- Combat. Mm-hmm. Um, but he needed to make more money. Now, Kurtzman had a style of artwork that was very much kind of like an animation style. Mm-hmm. It was it was much more spontaneous, very much uh, about, it was all about gesture. Mm-hmm. You know, it was all about the movement. It's all about the, what the body language and the movement, the, the, the way you can use the movement of a figure to forward the story, to tell the story. That's what Carson was about. And he was about other things too. But when it came to his own art, that was visually, that's what really was his art was about. But a lot of comics readers didn't really respond to his style of finished art because it, it was, in some ways, it was very loose. It had a very loose and spontaneous look. Mm-hmm. And a lot of animators or, or humorous cartoonists could recognize this is brilliant work. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and the people that he worked with, like Wood and Will Elder and and Severin, they knew they knew Kurtzman was brilliant, and 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 the publisher at Mad, Bill Gaines, he knew Kurtzman was brilliant, but Kurtzman was like, he didn't do a lot of his own artwork. He did he did a lot of the covers. He would take right. more time on the covers for his the war comics at EC, Frontline Combat, Two to Visit Tales, and he did beautiful color separations. Everyone always wants thinks that Marie Severin did all the coloring at EC. No. She was the primary colorist. But some of the artists cared so much about the art that colored themselves. Wood yeah. colored a lot of his covers. He wouldn't necessarily color, color his interiors because he didn't have time. He was too much in demand to do the final, the, the, the penciling and inking. But he would take the time to color his covers. Mm-hmm. Likewise, you had a couple of guys that were editors there who were also artists. You've got Johnny Craig, and you've got Al Feldstein, and you've got Harvey Kurtzman. All three of those guys were artists, writers, mm-hmm. and editors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they would frequently color their own covers when they would illustrate a cover. Mm. Uh, and I've seen a couple that uh, 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 Graham Ingalls a.k.a. Ghastly, specialized in horror work. <laughs> uh, he would color some of his covers, too, to get that to just the perfect shade of putrid, putrid green zombie. Right. Flesh, flesh tones. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, anyway, so Kurtzman was saying to Gaines he needed to make more money. And Gaines is like, well, you'd have to take on another book, and but we don't need any more war books. And so Gaines and, and the other uh, editor there, and I think he was in the room while this discussion was going on, Al Feldstein, they all knew that Kurtzman had this great flair for humor. Right. And so the idea of doing a humor book came up, mm-hmm. and, and, and they, they batted around a couple ideas for titles, and it ended up being mad. So... Uh, there is no Mad Without Harvey 
because he created it. Right. But Harvey knew who there at EC could do humor work. Right. He knew, and, 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 and at the time, Will Elder was not considered a major artist. Right. He, he usually worked, occasionally you would see a story he would do on his own, but frequently he would collaborate with either Severin or Kurtzman on something. Right. Yeah. And so he had not really come into a spotlight on his own. But once they got mad, Harvey knew that Will Will Elder was a very funny guy. Yeah. And and he was he was a real cut up. He was a, a he was a clown. He was a <laughs> and so Harvey knew that, and they would sit around joking around, you know, together. And they worked in the studio together uh, uh, for years. And so so Harvey gave Will lots of work, and so Will really started to shine and, and mad like he had never shown before. That he really came into his own on Mad, and then Jack Davis. Even though Jack Davis was doing, he could do westerns, he could do anything. He could do horror, he could do science fiction. There was always a little cartoony feel to his work. Right. You know, and so, and, and, uh, and Harvey was very familiar with Davis, so he knew he wanted Davis on it. So it was a very, very, it was Harvey's top first pick guys. It was Davis, Wood, Severin, and Elder. That was it. Yep. <laughs> that's that's the whole kit and caboodle. And curse at in the beginning, Kurtzman was writing practically every story. Uh, after a while, right right about the time Mad hit, is when all this political McCarthyism, right wing craziness went on in the fifties, where people are telling everyone to spy on their neighbors. You know, report them to the officials if you see anything suspicious. You know, there's there's a there's a communist around every corner, right. <laughs> and you need to re you need to report. You need to call the authorities and report your neighbors if you see anything suspicious. I mean, this was this was nasty business yeah. that was going on in the fifties, and meanwhile, you start to get a couple of senators like McCarthy and and uh, a Keith Alver who had their own political careers that they were trying to bolster. And so they wanted power. Uh, everyone I talked to, I wasn't around at the time, but the people I know that were, you know, including Joe Orlando and Carmine Infantino, they all said that uh, Keith Alver was wanting, hoping to get the vice presidential seat uh, with Adlai Stevenson. Hmm. When he ran for president in the 50s. Right. And so he needed to get his name in front of the public. Mm. So the best way, they had all these hearings on un-American activities going on. Uh, and so there was no better way for a senator to get known outside of their state. And you have to remember again, you got radio, TV was new. That's the new thing in, in, in 1953. Mm -hmm. You know, it had been radio before that. There's no Internet. And now you got TV, and they're airing these congressional hearings, as we should probably expect to see again soon. <laughs> um, 
I understand PBS will be airing some congressional hearings coming up very shortly. <laughs> so, and I'll be tuned into those because it is very important national significance yes. and that the citizenry knows what's going on and, and what's at stake. So, so uh, as this Keith Alver, he, he was looking to get his name known. So he, he was like, okay, you know, what can I look into that may be, you know, harmful to America that I can put a spotlight on that will, in the meantime, put my name in front of the public on a national level, not just for my state that I'm supposed to represent. And so he got a hold of this book, Seduction of the Innocent, <laughs> which was blaming all of America's woes, uh, which in, in those days they were referring to as juvenile delinquency. Right, <laughs> and uh, there's some films that I always break up when you see the films. Like, well, how do you recognize a juvenile delinquent? Well, they tend to wear dungarees. Yes, <laughs> uh, and they roll. You know, they don't. They don't have the money to pay a tailor, or their or they, their mothers are so poor at being mothers that they can't hem up their dungarees. So they just roll the legs up, and they and they wear t-shirts. Who would who would wear t? t-shirt had the audacity to wear t-shirt in public you know an undershirt and they wear they wear t-shirts and they roll up their cigarettes in the sleeve of the t-shirts and uh, they chew gum and they they put grease in their hair and they you know that's to keep the lice out because with these though you never know where these people are hanging out they may need some grease in their head here to keep the lice out right so these were these were the juvenile delinquencies you know we thought that after World War II that everything was going to be peace and wonderful and new houses and everything. And to a large extent it was. But mm -hmm. then all of a sudden you had rebels without a cause. And they were fighting something. They didn't even know what they were fighting. But they knew they didn't fit into this clean-cut, flat-top, sweatered, letterman-sweatered uh, life that was being fed to them on a spoon. So uh, anyway, so this uh, Keith Albert started this, you know, uh, congressional hearings into juvenile delinquency and they start bringing up comic books and it caused a big ruckus and it really damaged the industry and and the books didn't couldn't get distributed and they started being censored to, to try to save the industry they started censoring the comics so all the they could no longer publish the horror comics and, right. and it was even difficult to publish science fiction a lot of other subjects anything that wasn't really you know clean cut stuff was difficult so so ec shut down the regular comics but mad was starting to take off as a humor comic so they turned it into a full-size magazine yeah and before long um it mad became mad became a very a significant hit and it was getting attention it was getting press attention it was getting publicity and they were selling big numbers Kirschman was very proud. Now, in the early days, they didn't know the first few issues. It didn't look like it was going to be a hit. Right. Yeah, and the publisher, money. Bill Gaines, yeah. <laughs> regularly would cite what made Mad a hit was the Wally Wood story, Super Duper Man, yeah. which appeared in Mad Number no. 4. Right. And they said up until then... It was on the verge of cancellation. Mm -hmm. There was no reason to believe that Mad was ever going to be hit. But they led, they, when Super Duper Man came in, they knew they had something special there. And mm -hmm. they ran it as the front issue 
the front story that had the mad comic could have you know four or five stories they read it, they ran it as the lead story mm-hmm. and and the, the the reader response was fantastic and they knew that like this this you know the things that Harvey had been trying before that but they knew we could now lampoon anything right. you know they were doing kind of like humorous takeoffs on comic books and different genres or radio shows or whatever but once they did the super it just kind of expanded their consciousness on what on where they could go that that the world was their oyster and that they could take on anything mm-hmm. and there was threat of suit from DC over that yeah but uh, but uh, that kind of goes off into another story they worked yeah. it out and when they actually years later when the copyright law was rewritten uh, they added a section of protection under parody and that was largely because the people who wrote the copyright law were big Mad Magazine fans, and they wanted to make sure. <laughs> you know, you had, you know, the political cartooning was a rich tradition in America, and that's seen as part of freedom of the press. But somehow people didn't see that protection as flowing into comic books that were selling to kids. Mm-hmm. And so it, it really it, it needed to be cited that... Uh, uh, lampooning or parodies needed to be protected uh, in the copyright statute, and eventually it, it was written into the copyright law. Yeah. So, so it becomes a big hit, and as it is, it's bringing attention to Kurtzman. And any time somebody wanted to cover Mad in a newspaper article or a magazine article, the natural person for them to interview would be Harvey Kurtzman, mm-hmm. and Kurt Kurtzman would. F- might mention, you know, his key guys, uh, you know, uh, uh, Wood, Elder, Davis, Severin. But Severin left pretty quick. You could probably cite exactly what issue. Yeah, was know, issue, what was the, issue 10. That was the last one. Yeah, yeah. So how long after that was it that Kraft launched? Um, well, probably two or three years because Mad was a comic book for another year and a half after that and then right. uh, uh, I think Severn went over to Marvel for a while it was Atlas at that time doing uh, westerns yeah exactly yeah and then yeah, so he, yeah, he westerns. yeah yeah so crack gave him the platform where he could return to humor right and so and and he became the star he, right. he was without any question he was the star I mean we would buy crack it was for the Severn it's like you know you we get everyone else so we in mad well, but but Severin's in crack now. We got to pick that up, right? You know? <laughs> so so then uh, one of the some of the limelight that was coming to Kurtzman included he met Hugh Hefner, who was becoming a big success with Playboy magazine, mm-hmm. and so because they were getting this all this attention and mad, and the sales were so good. Uh, Kurtzman was now seeing himself as more than a comic book editor. It's, he's a magazine editor. He's not just the editor. He's the creator of it. And he's also the primary writer. Uh, he would also do some covers. He'd do a little bit of artwork, but usually he, you know, he, the other artists do the artwork. He would do very loose little layouts that a lot that he would instruct them to follow. Um, so, he was getting a lot of the, uh, the lion's share of the attention out of the success of Mad, and he met Hefner, and he was kind of commiserating how 
he wanted the magazine to go on slick paper instead of newsprint, and he wanted to have some color in there instead of all black and white. You know, it's like why, you know, all the big successful magazines get slick paper and color. We're selling a million copies. Why can't I have slick paper and color? He saw it as something, he, it was something Harvey wanted. Right. And Bill, Bill's take on it, the publisher, Bill Gaines, his take was even before the term existed, counterculture, there was a vibe. You know, you had beatniks in the 50s, and there was a vibe of an alternative culture, even though people weren't using those terminologies yet. And Bill thought that there was something about that newsprint paper in black and white that tapped into that zeitgeist somehow. And, and that people that were reading mad, they felt like, kind of like, uh, you know, they felt like, oh, this is our special club, even though it happens to be a club that's selling a million copies. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, so, and, the, and the fact that it cost a lot less money in production values and, and in a, a production expense made it easy for, for Bill to keep that point of view. Uh, you have to realize that he almost went out of business there with the comics code coming in. Uh, and all the money he had made on the horror comics was lost uh, before Mad took off. It, it, and so, but then uh, Hefner tells Kurtzman, I will finance a big slick color magazine. Mm-hmm. You know, you can leave mad, and and I'll finance, and you'll have even more creative freedom. Mm-hmm. And so, Kurtzman liked the i Kurtzman liked the sound of that. So he goes to Gaines, and he tells Gaines, "Give me fifty-one percent <laughs> control, fifty-one percent ownership of this magazine, or I'm walking." Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's it's not it's it's, it's he's playing hardball. Yeah. You know, I I it's not blackmail, but it's definitely hardball because nobody thought that anybody it never crossed anyone's mind that anyone could run that magazine but Harvey Kurtzman. Right. Okay. So, pardon my French, but Bill was rightfully about ready to shed a brick. <laughs> And, uh, I mean, it's it's time for a nervous breakdown. It's like, I can't give away. 51, that, the difference between, he Bill actually said, right at that time, his best friend was Joe Orlando. Mm-hmm. And Joe's wife worked as a secretary in Bill's office. And the two couples, Bill and his wife, Joe and his wife, they would go out to dinner like three times a week, every week. They would get together and play bridge. They would go on vacation together. That's how close they were. Mm -hmm. Okay, so at that juncture, at that time, his closest confidant was Joe Orlando. Well, Joe Orlando was one of Wood's closest confidants. They had been partners in the earlier Wood studio, and but but once they both got you know the full you know the all the work they could handle out of EC, there was no reason for them to, to share studio anymore. So they both, you know, went their separate ways, but they were still the best of friends. So Bill, it's natural that he's telling Orlando, and Orlando told this to me, the information you're getting me, I got straight from Joe Orlando, okay. who was, got his 
was in, was first person testimony of his interactions with his best friend Bill Gaines when Harvey was threatening to leave if he didn't get control of the magazine and he told Joe he says if he had only asked for 49% <laughs> he said I would have given him 49% but he says I'm the publisher yeah. I can't give him 51% right you know I, I, it, it just it doesn't happen yeah and it's almost as if Kurtzman knew there's no way Gaines was going to give him total control of the magazine 51% you've got total control mm-hmm so, basically, Kurtzman really wanted to go with Hefner. He saw that as the avenue to even a bigger time success than he already had with Mad. Mm-hmm. So he, he gave uh, Gaines an ultimatum that he should have known Gaines could never fulfill or would never fulfill. All right? So... And, but but Gaines told Orlando, he says, if you'd only ask for me, and forty nine percent of mad, millions of dollars. Right, right. <laughs> Harvey would have been made for his life on Easy Street for yeah. life. Forty nine percent of Mad Magazine, <laughs> millions. Okay. Yeah. He would have been a he would have been a millionaire very quickly. All right, and he, and and continued. So he he partners up with Hefner, and they launch a um, they launch a title called Trump Magazine. Right now, there is a title that is bound to fail. <laughs> How many things have been named Trump that have failed? <laughs> Trump's Trump State, Trump Airlines, Trump this, Trump that. They all they all hit bankruptcy very quickly. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, um, uh, they launched Trump. It's full color. But part of the game plan was not just to get the founder of MAD and to give him better money in a, a fancier, slicker magazine. But part of their success plan, their, their plan for success, was to take the talent with them. Right. Okay, we're not just going to create a better magazine than Mad. We're going to hit Mad with a torpedo and sink that ship. We don't have to compete with Mad if Mad goes under. We can take over as the top humor magazine. Mm-hmm. All right. So at that point, it was still. The lion's share of the work was done. You know, Severn wasn't even there anymore. It's still uh, uh, Wood, Davis, and Elder. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, and those were his right-hand men. Those were his closest associates. Yeah. Uh, other than Severn. Did, did Severn do anything with Harvey after he left Matt? Um, as far as I know, no. And that was it. Um, well, I don't know. I don't know five. how well Harvey and uh, John got along. You know. Well, I mean, I know he took over for Two Fisted Tales, kind of as editor. So you know, maybe that's kind of working their, together. You know. Their um, their politics was different. Yeah, definitely. But Har- Harvey and Will Elder and Wood were all liberals. Yeah. 
and and Severin was was uh, very right wing. Yeah. But I'll tell you what's different between those days and these days <laughs> is those guys had a great mutual respect for each other. Yeah. And they could sit, they could have a heated discussion about politics, mm-hmm. but they still listened to each other. Right. They listened to each other, and they both, and they all knew that the other guy's point of view, though they may differ with it, they both, they all, at the at the foundation of their point of view, they cared about the nation. Right. There was nothing more important than harmony of the citizens and the strength of the nation. Mm-hmm. They just had a different point of view of what's the best way to to keep things flowing in a harmonious way. Right. You know, and and John was in the minority, uh, being their their resident right winger. Right. But it never stopped them that never stopped them from being friends. Right. So I don't I it, that would be a good story for someone to cover. Yeah. And I've I, never I, seen I, I don't remember anyone really covering what happened. It had to be something else that broke up uh, Kurtzman and Severin because those guys, those guys have been tied for a long time. Yeah. Well, d- didn't Severin take over for Two Fisted Tales? I thought he kind of assumed the editorship of a sort, and that's what well, happened. Well, it may have been that because he still worked know. on that title. He didn't. Yeah. He, you know, he just stopped working on Mad. Whereas Mad went monthly, and so yeah. and uh, Frontline Combat went away, and Kurtzman yeah. devoted his whole time to Mad, so I don't think he had time. Right. Yeah, uh, now, after point. Crack came along, all bets were off. Severin had a really sweet deal at Crack, and so he was never going to do anything, except he right. did like Incredible Hulk and a few things later. But you know, in general, he was set <laughs> after yeah. that point. But, yeah, that was his. That was his bread and butter. That was his primary account. Yeah. Well, do you remember what the last question was? Well, the last question. Oh, saving a mad. We're still on saving a mad. Yes. Okay, we're coming. Yes. Okay, here we go. So, Kurt, so, 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 uh, he had, so, uh, Kurtzman threw down the gauntlet. He, he gives this ultimatum to Gaines. Gaines is on the verge of a nurse breakdown. Right. He is sweating bullets. And he's talking to, he's talking to Orlando, his, his, his best friend. Mm-hmm. And uh, Gaines's kids called Joe Orlando Uncle Joe. They were raised with that's Uncle Joe. Mm-hmm. That's how close they were. And so he says to, he's like, I don't know what I'm going to do. He says, if Harvey leaves, I, he says, no, I don't think anyone can run that magazine. I, I, I'm going to have to shut the whole thing down. We were just, just getting back on our feet from all the losses they took because of the. Keith Alver and censorship stuff that came, you know, from in the fifties. They were just starting to get back on their feet thanks to the success of Mad. And now he's looking the way he's looking at it. Mad's walking out the door. That, yeah. You know, Matt. He he was looking at Kurtzman. That Kurtzman is the embodiment of Mad. And it's like so he he's 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 sweating bullets. He's 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 singing the blues to Orlando. Mm-hmm. And he. And then he says, he and Orlando says, hire Feldstein back. Mm-hmm. Everyone else had been let go. There was no, you know, Johnny Craig had been an editor. All those books were canceled. It was over. Yeah. There was nothing left but Mad, and Mad was a big success. And so, he, and Orlando had worked with Feldstein, 
and Feldstein, for a while, when Mad was a comic book, it was so successful, they started a second humor one. But Carsman yeah. didn't have time to do it, so Feldstein did it, and that was Panic. Right. And Panic was really good. Yeah. And and so, uh, in on Panic, the artist did every everything. You know, on for Mad, Harvey would do really rough, rough for little thumbnail, little breakdown layouts, and say, "Hey, you know, follow my storytelling." Right. And he was a brilliant storytelling, so that was good. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a lot, some of the artists, including Wood, they didn't want to be obligated to follow that they right. if, if, if it was provided for them they would probably follow it but if they had what they thought was a better idea they wanted the freedom to try their what they felt was the better idea but Harvey was a very tough guy to work for yeah and and Al Williamson and I were very close and and he said he says you know I loved Harvey I had all the respect for him he's brilliant but I would not want to work for Harvey yeah he said he was, he was a very tough man because you did it Harvey's way, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, he he understood the artistic process. He understood that the artists had to have some room to enjoy their work to, mm-hmm. and to put some of their own creativity in it, and he wanted that. But if it was something Harvey wanted in it, he was going to demand, you know, no, no, that's, that's staying in. You do it my way, you know. <laughs> yeah. So... So every now and then that would ruffle Wood's feathers or someone else's feathers a little bit. Um, so Gaines says to Orlando, you know, the readers don't even know who Harvey is. <laughs> they care about, to them, the star of the show is Wally Wood. Mm. And... He says, if we could keep Wood, and he knew, it, it seemed like Bill had a sus- at least a suspicion that Harvey was going to try to take the talent with him, <laughs> which which was Wood, uh, Davis, and Elder. Right. Right. So Gaines said, if we if we could keep, you know, if I took your suggestion at first, to tell you the truth, he didn't want to hire Feldstein back. Hmm. He told Orlando, I hate Feldstein. No. <laughs> and Orlando's was what what's the hate? Yeah, you know, he's a good editor. He's a good writer. I worked with him. I didn't have a trouble with him. Yeah. He said, but see, Feldstein worked in the office with Bill. Yeah. All right. And he says, Well, if I order a new typewriter, he'll pull it out of the box and use it before I get to. <laughs> and, and Orlando said, That's a stupid reason not to hire a talented man. Yeah, I never heard <laughs> he that says, story. That's funny. Yeah, well, yeah, I got that. I got that straight from Joe, and Joe got straight from Bill. So, and then he talked. There was another advisor he had there, uh, Lyle Stewart. Yeah, was a close business advisor that Gaines had, and he talked to Lyle Stewart after he talked to Orlando. And Lyle said, "Yeah, I think that that's your best bet. Yeah. Is hire Feldstein back." So Bill, he decides that's what he's going to do. And then he tells, but see, Panic was not a hit. Mad was a hit. Mad was run by Kurtzman. Panic was a quality humor comic, mm-hmm. but it was not. It was never the hit that Mad was. Right. So Gaines had no, you know, even though he had seen that that Feldstein could write humor, that he could edit humor, 
and he knew Felstein would make the deadlines, that didn't let him know that Mad would sell without Harvey. Right. So, and he was he was terrified that Har- that her talent was going to follow Harvey to Harvey's new magazine. So he told Orlando, "You're you're close with Woody. If we can keep him, he's the star. He's our star. That he's the one that." The people who buy the magazine, they're buying it for him. That's He's the number one name that they're looking for. Mm-hmm. If we can keep Wood, we might have a chance to make it without Harvey. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and he didn't want to call Wood, but he, he wanted Orlando to work on him because he knew that Orlando, Orlando was practically like Wood's brother. Mm-hmm. So as close as Joe was with Bill... Joe was that close with Wood, and if, if Wood was going to listen to someone, Orlando was going to—he was going to listen to Orlando without thinking there was any ulterior motives or anything like that. And so Orlando told me he would call Wood and talk to him. He says, "You don't want to be chained to Harvey's layouts for the rest of your life." <laughs> <laughs> See, you can't get that elsewhere. That's mm-hmm. got stuff, little tidbits like that. Mm-hmm. You gotta get, you gotta go straight to the horse and get it straight from the horse's mouth. And I got it straight from Orlando, and that's what he told Wood. It's yeah. like you don't want to be chained to Harvey's layouts for the rest of your life, right. you know. And and Wood was like, he was loyal to Bill. He's like, because he, that's where he became a star. Mm-hmm. Now he could go elsewhere based on his success at EC and mad he could go anywhere he wanted to but he knew they had an interesting relationship Gaines and Wood Gaines knew that despite the fact that he had this who's who's list of talent nobody was more important there talent wise than Wood was and that Wood had helped him build that company and Wood knew that no matter how much talent he put on that page nobody would ever know it if he didn't have Bill to publish it and to be behind him and to give him the artistic freedom to put all the stuff in there he wanted to put in there. Right. You know, and to provide good writers, you know, and they they knew that they were breaking ground together. They were doing something between Harvey and Al's writing and Wood's art. And Wood wrote a little bit for EC, too. Yeah. Not a lot. Yeah. But even yeah. when someone else wrote it, Wood could would add ideas to it. And Wood would also give them ideas, which... Bring, could bring us to another story on uh, one of the most most famous Wood stories. It was called My World. Right. Uh, we could talk. We could talk about My World, and you know, there there is some debate on who wrote the story. Yeah. Okay. Is, is it was it written by Wood or was it written by Feldstein? Thank you for listening, and thank you, J. David Spurlock, for being my special guest. Episode number fifty-five will be coming soon with part two of my interview with J. David Spurlock about Wally Wood. If you would like to comment and/or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com. Become a patron of Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions. If everyone listening just contributed a dollar a month, that would be a tremendous help in continuing the production of my books and this podcast. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. The opening and closing music for the Fun Ideas podcast is provided courtesy of Andrew the Slow Poisoner Goldfarb and is used with permission. This has been the Fun Ideas podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2020, Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you and good night.
Of your lube, jeweled lube, too. 